Welcome to Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom, the podcast where I have the privilege of speaking with people who see the wrong in the world and are driven to make it right. Today, I speak with a native New Yorker who saw the differences between the experiences of her own family and those of her friends within the criminal legal system and threw herself into the work of leveling the playing field. If people have what they need, if people have housing, if people have healthcare, if people have the mental health access that they need, education, job opportunities, that world will really be fundamentally different. And we wouldn't see some of the kinds of harm that we see in the world as it exists right now, in which we frankly deeply and structurally deprive people of what they need. With experience in bail, pretrial justice, and educational access reform, she now leads the organizing and advocacy efforts of the Center for Community Alternatives. Katie Schaefer, right now on Righteous Convictions. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for The Everyday Guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Welcome back to Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom. Today's guest is Katie Schaefer. Basically, she is leading the charge to reform the criminal justice system in New York State. Bail reform, pretrial justice, community support, rehabilitative alternatives, and making our system more humane, both inside and outside the walls. And her work continues now at the Center for Community Alternatives, where she serves as the Director of Organizing and Advocacy. Wow. That's an awesome title, and we're going to get right into it. So, Katie, welcome to Righteous Convictions. Thanks so much for having me. So, Katie, I mean, I know you're a fourth-generation New Yorker, and I know you have a big heart, and you care about fairness and justice and equity, but what led you into this work? So, my family are white, are Ashkenazi Jews, uh, who have now lived in New York City, as you said, for four generations. And when I was 10... Amadou Diallo was murdered by the NYPD, who shot 42 times, who was unarmed. And it was, I think for me, the sort of first time I had really understood that state safety and state violence were not equitably distributed and that sort of systemic racism could mean death. And 
I didn't come from a family that sort of lauded the policing or carceral system, but I was also not told as a kid to be scared of it. And that was sort of an early politicizing moment for me. And then as I got a little older, I became really clear the ways that my white family and my friends, my Black friends, my Dominican friends in New York City's families did not have the same relationship to this system. And I started organizing with other people. And then a bit later on, after I had graduated from college, I started to do college in prison work. So I was working at the City University of New York, helping bring in college access and organizing with incarcerated college students. And we sort of did what we could to organize behind the walls, you know, from the tiny material things, the sort of banality of evil of the prison system, trying to get highlighters for college students behind the walls, sort of everything was a, was frankly an organizing fight. And I had sort of outside of my education work was organizing in a volunteer capacity. And it just became clear that those things needed to come together. And so I started working at an organization that was launching bail reform and pretrial justice campaign to try to end a system of pretrial incarceration and of wealth-based detention. And that's a little bit, at least, of how I got into this work. So out of college and right into the fight, right? And, you know, I'm glad you talked about college and prisons. You know, I don't think the public has any grasp on just how transformative education is behind bars and how much it helps on the outside because 95 plus percent of people that are in our prisons and jails are going to come home. And it makes a gigantic difference on how they're going to fare on the outside and whether or not they'll ever recidivate. So it helps everyone. So you served as the director of college access at the Prisoner Reentry Institute. You seem to get saddled with long titles of long <laughs> named organizations. And that, of course, was at the venerable John Jay College. And now it's called the Institute for Justice and Opportunity. I like that name, by the way. So you collaborated, I mean, not just teaching, but you also collaborated with incarcerated students to develop and expand college access in New York State prisons. I know there were a lot of challenges to that because the public is like, why should we pay our hard-earned tax dollars to educate people in prison? So in 1994, the federal government passed what was called the Crime Bill, which eliminated Pell Grants, federal financial aid grants to incarcerated college students. New York State followed suit in 1995, eliminating state financial aid for incarcerated college students. And this really destroyed access to college. So what we were doing by the time that I was there is trying to sort of rebuild this decimated system. And one of the things that started to make that more possible was there was an exception to the prohibition on financial aid under Obama that allowed some colleges to receive federal financial aid dollars to expand college access. And then the recent victory of eliminating that prohibition on Pell Grants, and I'm no longer personally doing this work, but creates a sort of new and expanded opportunity to increase college access. There continues to be college programs in only a pretty small fraction of the 
prisons in New York State, and certainly much less than the demand of folks behind bars for access. And so I think that piece about access and also about quality, strong academic access is the important next stage of that fight. You literally flipped the script because everybody's heard about the school to prison pipeline, right? And then you've got now the prison to college pipeline, right? It's really, it's kind of poetic. Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom is super excited and honored to have the support of a great organization like Galaxy Gives. Galaxy Gives leads the philanthropic efforts of the Novogratz family. They invest in organizations, campaigns, and leaders who are directly impacted by and working to dismantle the current punitive justice system. Galaxy Gives also builds power for the communities most harmed by mass incarceration and forges transformative solutions for responding to that harm. They envision a society where the structural barriers created by racism, poverty, and inequality are no more, where instead all people have the dignity, freedom, and rights needed to thrive. Talk to me about the Envision Freedom Fund. So I did some work for the Envision Freedom Fund back when it was called the Brooklyn Community Bail Fund. And the organization has played a really important role, both in freeing people in a day-to-day way and paying people's bail. We have a system in which huge numbers of people are incarcerated pretrial on bail they cannot afford. And the bail fund was literally restoring people to their homes, to their families who were locked up functionally for the criminalization of poverty. The bail fund, now the Envision Freedom Fund, also played a really important role in showing that money was not necessary for people to return to court. And that had sort of been the premise of bail. You have to set a money bail, somebody needs to be sort of financially in debt to the court in order for them to come back to court. And what the Envision Freedom Fund was able to show is that even when they paid the bail, so the person themselves was not on any financial hook, that people come back to court and that the way that you support people is actually really simple. It's reminding them that they have court, that people have busy and complicated lives, and that sort of really basic court reminders helped. And that if you ask people sort of what other kinds of support they needed and tried to provide that support, that was the ticket. Uh, And so they played an important role in the fight for bail reform in New York State to try to drastically reduce the number of people who are incarcerated pre-trial and all of the cascading harmful consequences that pre-trial detention has from taking people away from their families to lost jobs and housing to unjust case outcomes in which people take guilty pleas, frankly, just to get out of jail pre-trial, this sort of system of conveyor belt plea deals. And so they played an important role in that fight and in the passage of bail reform in New York State. We saw a decrease of the number of people incarcerated pre-trial by 40%. But it is also a tinged victory. It's one that we're continuing to fight as we see the forces of backlash of sort of lock them up, political, carceral conservatism show up. And so we have been in a sort of continuous battle on bail reform, which I think we all wish was moving forward to even further reduce and end pretrial incarceration and instead has had to be a battle of 
defending what we've won so far. If you could design the bail system, what would it look like? And what do you say to people that say, well, what are you going to do when somebody goes and sprays a McDonald's with bullets and then you're going to let them out on the street? And there's, you know, we know what some of the pitfalls are, but what would your ideal bail system look like? The vision is from our system's own articulation of itself that you are supposed to be treated as innocent until proven guilty. And what pretrial incarceration is, is fundamentally treating people as guilty until they can prove otherwise and putting them into a setup in which they are very likely to then end up being coerced into pleading guilty. And so the vision is for as few people to be incarcerated pretrial as possible. The way that we've looked to accomplish that in New York is to guarantee pretrial freedom for as many people as possible. And then in cases where somebody can still be incarcerated pretrial to have as many due process protections in place as possible to try to, again, limit the number of people who are incarcerated pretrial rather than have jail be a knee-jerk response. And to prevent the treating of what police say as the be-all and end-all that we see in the reporting in the press quite frequently, that what police say is taken as truth with very little journalistic integrity or fact-checking, but also an arrest is taken to be somehow equivalent to a conviction in ways that imbue police with far too much power. Amen to that. And we see it day in and day out on the news and in uh, video after video. and It's numbing you know, but we can't be numbed and we can't relax. In the world that I want to live in, we don't put people in cages. So we do not have jails or prisons that we have other ways of dealing with harm, that we meet people's basic needs. We People have access to quality housing and health care and educational access and economic opportunities. And that when harm does occur, that we have restorative processes, that we have other ways of addressing it that do not mean that people are in cages for years, decades, their lives. And so that is the sort of long-term goal. And it means that in that context, it requires a sort of fundamental reimagining of what any of these systems would look like. And And I'm interested in this point of view. So what happens if you have no prisons at all? Let's take that example, right? Somebody does walk into a McDonald's or or into a school, right? And, you know, murder a bunch of people. What do we as a society, if we don't have a place to put them, a prison, for lack of a better word, what, what do we do? I think to some extent, we collectively haven't answered that question, right? That this is the part of the sort of radical and visionary work of dreaming, a different world and there aren't necessarily in this moment sort of the easiest of answers. I think it begins before somebody has done harm that we treat sort of violence as really self-evident in a particular kind of way, as opposed to looking at the sort of larger structural forces that if people have what they need, if people have housing, if people have healthcare, if people have the mental health access that they need, if people have education and job opportunities, that that world will really be fundamentally different. And we wouldn't see some of the kinds of harm that we see 
in the world as it exists right now in which we frankly deeply and structurally deprive people of what they need. Then I think the second piece, because what the criminal legal system does is once harm has been done, they respond to that harm. But that's not actually the world that we want to live in. We want to live in the world where that harm didn't happen. And so I think this sort of next piece of it is what does community safety and violence prevention look like that isn't just responding to violence once it has already happened. And I think some of that is work with and opportunities for young people, particularly in communities where we have systematically divested from access and opportunity. Some of that looks like really important work that violence interrupters and that other kinds of community-based organizations are doing. So you can see sort of all of the answer that I have given to you so far is about how do we actually fundamentally transform the world we live in in such a way that we don't see the kinds of violence at the scale that we currently see in the US. And I think that is actually the vast majority of where I think energy should be going, is that kind of systemic and structural transformation. And then I think there is this sort of final piece, which is what you're pointing to, which is even in that world, harm of various scales will continue to occur. And so how do we address that harm? What does it look like for somebody to be held accountable for harm that they've done for them to engage in restoration, that we have a system right now in which survivors of harm do not get what they need, right? If you think about even in in sort of a casual way of times that you have been harmed by somebody, what you want is an apology. You want sort of restoration of whatever was harmed if something happened to, you know, somebody messed up your favorite hat, whatever it is, that you want something restored. You want a commitment and some evidence that it's not going to happen again or happen to somebody else. And these are things sort of in the important research on sort of like, what do survivors actually want? These are the important things that people want. And people get none of that in our criminal legal system as it currently exists. And there are various groups doing restorative justice in schools, doing restorative justice in cases where people have been arrested, who are trying to figure out sort of what does that kind of process look like. And I think that there are some really powerful models. And also, it's something that I think we're collectively still trying to figure out. You know, I I can see it someday. But until we can answer the question of what do you do with the guy, you know, who goes and shoots up Sandy Hook? Yeah, I think even for people where it's sort of like harder to imagine an abolitionist future, I think it is a useful sort of like provocation for us to be thinking about sort of what are the underlying or root cause issues? How do we address those but even when we address them, there's still going to be people who are just mentally disturbed and they're going to go shoot up at school. That's just what they're going to do because there's guns. Because not everybody who does these things was deprived of anything. Some of them were raised in perfectly normal like Ted Bundy, right? I mean, what do you do with Ted Bundy when you catch him? You don't go, hey, Ted, we got to get you some mental health treatment. You know, you're not doing so good there, buddy. He was doing fine. He was having a great time. And he didn't have any underlying issues. And he wasn't a victim of any of this stuff. I totally hear that. Although I think CSI, I think, has convinced everybody that there are a lot of serial killers out in the world. And I think there um, aren't. that is but- really untrue. And I think having a system where, you know, 
2.3 million people are behind bars every day oh, of because course, of Ted course, Bundy, of course. right? But, right, yeah, but what I, I'm saying is that the zero, zero is also not the right number, in my opinion. The number was 300,000 a long time ago, and that was too high. And maybe the number should yep. be 50,000, you know, or maybe it should be 10,000, but it isn't zero. You know, there are people who will do terrible, terrible things given the opportunity, and they can't wait to get out and do it again. And they've already done it. And I think that's that's where I draw the line and say, you know, it's utopian and it's great. And I love the idea and paper. But unfortunately, we're never going to live in a society that doesn't have that shit. So. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. So the HALT bill, I don't think a lot of people know about this, but this bill, which was passed in 2019 in New York State, stands for Humane Alternatives to Long-Term Solitary Confinement. Its passage was hailed as a major victory by criminal justice reformers, you know, everywhere. This was pushing a very large snowball up a very steep hill, as I recall. So tell us how you got this done and what it means. I am sort of humbled and honored for the small piece of this work that I was able to play. But this was a decade-long fight to get this bill passed. And it was tenaciously led by survivors of solitary who continued to fight for the end of the torture of solitary confinement in New York State. And 
it was a narrative fight. It was an organizing fight. It was a political education fight. And the strategies of the campaign were creative and brilliant and powerful. And they included everything from a model solitary confinement cell that would be brought to events or brought to the state capitol for legislators to be able to step inside and see what it would mean to be incarcerated for days or weeks or months or years in a cell smaller than a parking space. It included work to build off the declaration from the UN that incarceration and solitary confinement for more than 15 days is torture. It included the nuts and bolts, basic legislative advocacy work of getting supporters, co-sponsors among senators and assembly members. By the time the bill had passed, there was majority support from co-sponsors in both the assembly and the Senate and had been for over a year at that point. And that's actually pretty unusual. And it just shows the tenacity of the campaign and this sort of willingness to go person by person to get it done. Yes, I think the sensory experience of being inside of a jail cell would transform even some of the hardest hearts. And that's why that was, I think, such a you know, stroke of genius, and the results speak for themselves. So, Katie, um, we have a, a tradition, I guess we can call it now, because we've been doing this for a while, um, on righteous convictions, which is that I ask two questions in order of each of our amazing guests. And, of course, I start by thanking you again for being here and for all the great work you're doing. And the first question is, if you had a magic wand and could fix one problem, what would it be? This is a hard question to answer because on some level, I think all of the problems are interconnected. I don't know how to answer it as as sort of one thing. I think this sort of thing that I want is for there to be a commitment to meeting people's needs and for jail and prison to not be the kinds of knee-jerk responses that they currently are. And I think to do that requires addressing a really complicated set of interconnected problems from white supremacy on the one hand to a million sets of state, local, and federal laws and practices. And so I don't think I'm going to do a good job of answering a one thing question. All right, we're going we're gonna to kick that down the road. And um, on that note, I'd like to invite our audience to tune in next week for a re-release of our interview with Mike Novogratz, the man behind all of the efforts of Galaxy Gives, the philanthropic arm of the Novogratz family. And then we're going to be kicking off 2022 with James Anderson, an attorney who began his career fighting capital cases in Pennsylvania, first in the courtroom and eventually in a more macro sense from his position at the Rand Corporation, where his research leads to policy prescriptions for the criminal legal system at large. And now we go to the closing of our show, which is called Words of Wisdom, where First of all, I thank you, Katie Schaefer, for joining us. And then I'm going to turn my microphone off, leave my headphones on, kick back in my chair, and just listen to anything else you feel is left to be said. Jails and prisons don't solve harm. They create harm. And much of that is motivated 
by the fears of white people. And for those of us who are white and who come from communities that these systems were quote unquote supposed to protect, we have work to do to both support and elevate the leadership of people who have been harmed by these systems, but also to get our folks and to organize and deal with and educate and support the people who ostensibly are supposed to benefit from these systems to see the kind of violence they perpetrate across the board. Thank you for listening to Righteous Convictions with Jason Plum. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Lava for Good. You can also follow me on TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.